and welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. For those of you who are kind enough to follow Faith in the Folds, you're likely aware that my church tradition is Churches of Christ, which arose out of the Second Great Awakening from the 19th century, particularly stemming from what insiders and outsiders call the Stone-Campbell Movement, also known as the American Restoration Movement. I've spoken with a number of ministers from Churches of Christ over the last two years, and although my main training and area of emphasis is biblical studies and teaching, I and many others have observed a trend across the last few years, a trend of a minister shortage within Churches of Christ. Several who are much more well-versed in congregational ministry than I am have commented on this, most notably Carson Reed, who works with the Cybert Institute for Church Ministry based out of Abilene Christian University, which is affiliated with Churches of Christ. You can find this post of his on mosaicsite.org, the blog of the Cybert Institute. His article is titled, Ministers in Short Supply. And while he admits he doesn't like using the word, he believes a crisis might appropriately describe what Churches of Christ are currently facing. He cites four specific reasons why he believes this is the case. First, whether this is the reality or not, the perception of many ministers is that church members tend to treat their ministers as if the member is the minister's boss. Increasing polarization in the broader culture has worked its way into church life, with the result that ministers have found it all the more difficult to lead their congregations into greater Christ-likeness. Second, Reed has seen fewer students entering Christian colleges across the board coming to major in ministry. There may be a number of reasons for this, but Reed believes churches may bear some responsibility for, in his words, quote, not cultivating the hearts and passions of young people to enter into ministry, end quote. Now, in my own experience, I can say with full certainty that I grew up at a warm and loving church that instilled within me a love for God and love for others. But on the other hand, I, I can't remember, and I could just be forgetting, but I can't remember anyone specifically encouraging me to think about going into congregational ministry, even after, or, or rather until after I expressed interest in being a youth minister. Funny enough, that interest in youth ministry didn't last very long. But uh, anecdotally, two other Church of Christ universities I know of also see fewer Bible majors these days than just 10 years ago. Third, Carson Reed cites uh, a factor relating to minister compensation. It's true he acknowledges that some ministers at largest churches based in larger cities are certainly paid well, but he knows of even more ministers who struggle to make a living wage. Not only that, a lot of churches, especially smaller churches, tend to place what I would say are unreasonable expectations or even make demands of the preacher's wife. And I can attest to this last point personally, thankfully not where I currently work. In the negotiations with an eldership of a church where I worked for some time ago, they mentioned that the previous minister's wife did a number of things at church to help out and then asked if my wife would be able to do the same kinds of things. When I asked exactly what did the previous minister's wife do, they didn't really know. I politely informed them that my wife was working full-time at a job where she was very good at what she did, but she would be involved in the life of the church as much as she could be with a newborn. Fourth, and Reed's last point, is uh, relating to leadership dynamics in many churches. It is by no means uncommon for a minister with years of training and exp experience to find himself, nevertheless, on the outside looking in when it comes to discerning and leading the congregation. Eventually, a lot of good ministers decide they're just tired of not being fully included. 
At the risk of stating the obvious, stereotypes are not always true, but they do tend to happen for a reason. One common stereotype in Churches of Christ is that of the relatively successful businessman who is generally well-liked in the church and his community. His family is respected, and eventually this individual is selected to be an elder. Men like this can certainly serve God well for decades in their role as an elder of the church. I personally know plenty. But just as certainly there are those men who become elders under similar circumstances, and their only real qualification was that they were well-liked. Otherwise, they're not really spiritual leaders in any meaningful sense. But now, as elder, they are the de facto boss. And I hope you can hear those air quotes. Boss of a minister who likely has more experience and more training in all the facets of shepherding God's people, pastoral sensitivity, prophetic calling, and faithfully teaching God's word, to name three. Regardless, I think we're more certain of an elder's position in relation to a minister, that is, over a minister. And this can understandably create some tension within a church, particularly in church leaderships. Now, Carson Reed penned his blog post on May 24th, 2022. And a couple of months later, he was kind enough to let me interview him for Faith in the Folds. You can check out that interview here on the channel. Half a year later, and more, not much had changed, according to Bobby Ross, editor-in-chief of the Christian Chronicle, an international newspaper for Churches of Christ. You can find them online at christianchronicle.org. On January 23, 2023, Bobby Ross wrote an editorial entitled, Who's to Blame for the Preacher Shortage in Churches of Christ? We are. Ross's four reasons largely coincide with Reed's, and he presents these things as, these as things which the Churches of Christ lack. A lack of money, lack of faith, lack of unity, and a lack of respect. It should be pretty obvious what lack of money means. Ross notes that since most churches of Christ are small or smaller congregations, they either can't or won't support a full-time minister. According to Ross, a lack of faith is the sad reality that many ministers simply lose their drive for working with the church, and ministers' children often see it. Another challenge is the doctrinal differences that characterize large swaths of our churches. This lack of unity makes it difficult to navigate inter-congregational interaction. And finally, a lack of respect for many preachers has become apparent, perhaps, he says, in connection to political division in the country and angst regarding COVID responses. The single most devastating quote from Ross's editorial comes from a preacher who wished to remain anonymous. He says, quote, Churches of Christ, by and large, acted like they could mistreat preachers in every way possible and still hire one who would be new and shiny any time they wanted. The bill for bad behavior is now coming due for our fellowship. I hate to say it, but I think this preacher's on to something. Now, trust me when I tell you my experience in several years of congregational ministry has largely been pretty good, and please trust me again when I tell you that I have heard the horror stories of friends and acquaintances that corroborate the kinds of things that Carson Reed and Bobby Ross have reported. Here's an example that I can share because it happened to a close friend of mine. He agreed to preach for a church, and according to that church's elders, after six months, he would be given a raise. Six months came, and the elder in charge of finance came up to him and said, now, after six months, you were supposed to get a raise, right? My friend confirmed that that was the agreement. Then the elder looked at him and simply said, I just don't see how we can do that. And that was it. End of discussion. Now, the church wasn't broke. It was actually, had actually been growing for a few years in a row and was better off financially than it had been in quite a while. But that was all the elder said. I just don't see how we can do it. 
Now, it's possible someone out there might think, well, preachers shouldn't be it for the money anyway. And if you'll excuse me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pal. Yeah, yeah, we know. Ministers know they're not in it for the money, okay? The problem with what happened to my friend wasn't that he didn't get a raise. It was that he was promised a raise. The eldership had an obligation to do that. And in less than 30 seconds, they absolved themselves of keeping their word. Now, if the shoe were on the other foot and the minister agreed to do one thing and flatly refused to it months later because he just didn't see how he could do it, particularly something involving finances, that eldership would be justifiably upset. But because my friend needed his job so he and his wife could pay their mortgage and take care of their baby, what could he do? And I don't even need to mention the numerous preachers whose wives are expected to work for the church simply by being the preacher's wife. Of course, as a member of that church, she should be involved in the life of the church, but the expectations often placed on preachers' wives is that they're basically an unpaid employee of the church. Say what you want about the reasons for this. I don't know many ministers today who make enough money to cover all their family's expenses so that their wife does not have to work. Maybe it was different decades ago, but with a lot of couples today, especially ministers today, the spouse works as well, often in a full-time position. So... Don't treat them, in a way, to engender bitterness toward the church. The bottom line for a lot of preachers out there is this. They genuinely feel called to serve in these roles, and they're willing to make sacrifices to fulfill their calling. They already see themselves as servants, but that doesn't give any church member or any elder the right to behave as if you are the master of that servant minister. On March 2nd, 2023, one of my closest friends and a guest on Faith in the Folds, Luke Donkery, wrote a blog post on this very issue of minister shortage uh, entitled, Raising Up Ministers, Six Unhelpful Trends in Churches of Christ. Luke's main point is this, because churches of Christ are not raising up ministers like they used to, this is likely one contributing factor to the shortage of minister with ministers within churches of Christ. The most noteworthy feature of his article is his delineation of six trends that have ex exacerbated the shortage. Before getting to the trends, however, Luke offers this disclaimer, quote, To be clear, I'm not suggesting that these trends are inherently negative in and of themselves. They have had the effect, however, of making the practice of raising up ministers within the local congregation more difficult. The trends are, according to Luke, transitioning away from a small church fellowship, the transformation or elimination of Sunday night worship, the trans transition from sect to denomination, the loss of confidence and importance, the transition from sect to denomination at home in the world, secularization and the loss of the minister's prestige, and disquiet around gender roles. Now, on the first trend, Luke comments on the historic tendency for smaller churches to give more opportunities for young men to serve and lead because those smaller churches inherently have a smaller pool of people to draw from. By necessity, then, young men were given more opportunities to preach, teach, lead, sing, and give communion devotionals and say public prayers than at larger, per at larger churches where the pool of potential participants is, well, simply larger. A convenient context for many young men to do these very things was on Sunday nights, which brings Luke to his second trend. In many churches of Christ, Sunday night was largely a review of Sunday mornings with maybe a few different songs or some new faces in the lineup. That Sunday evening time of worship also provided an excellent opportunity for young people to practice doing what normally occurred 
on Sunday mornings. However, many churches have transitioned from meeting at the building to meeting in homes or have even canceled traditional Sunday night services altogether. There are various reasons for this shift, to be sure, but one result is to eliminate an opportunity for young people to do these things for the gathered body of believers. Now, the next two trends refer to sociological categorizations, not theological statements. The terms sect and denomination are often used by historians of religion and sociologists to refer to a religious group's self-understanding. If a particular church or group of like-minded churches, sees itself as the one true manifestation of God's people. In other words, uh, you could say they're the only ones going to heaven. That's typically described as a sect. A church, however, that understands itself as part of a denomination on the uh, part of a denomination generally acknowledges it is one expression of the church, which would include genuine believers from across denominational lines. Confidence in the rightness of our beliefs historically motivated many in churches of Christ to go to to go preach to those with no church background or perhaps with the wrong kind of church background and I again I hope you hear those air quotes around wrong kind with this shift Luke summarizes the sentiment of many when he says quote if we're less confident in the rightness of our belief and maybe many of our neighbors and other Christian groups don't really need us to straighten them out a life of preaching seems less important and less desirable end quote Following World War II, a financial boom across many lines of work gave more Americans than ever before the chance to earn financial security, almost exclusively in what many would describe as secular work. That's not Luke's term, it's my term to describe the kind of thing I believe Luke has in mind here. He summarizes the result of trend four like this, quote, Those in ministry will tell you that a common barrier to young people entering ministry is discouragement from their parents because of financial concerns. The feeling is that ministry does not pay well, often true, and parents will often emphasize financial security over God's call. My suspicion is that this parental discouragement stems from the broader transition to affluence. Back when all of us were poor, being poor as a preacher was no worse than anything else. As our bank accounts have swelled, the desirability of preaching has diminished. End quote. Speaking of secular work, The general trend of secularization and the decreased importance of Christianity in broader culture and church in the lives of families has led to a loss of social clout. I will say that in some pockets of American culture, particularly within the Bible Belt, ministers are still generally well-respected, but the reasonable assumption held by previous generations that a job as a minister would be respected, I think that has certainly dwindled. Lastly, the discussion surrounding uh, gender and gender roles in churches is Uh, currently facing an array of churches of Christ. Although many churches have decided their stance one way or the other, I'd say many more churches are unsure precisely what to do or how to adjust what they're currently doing or even how to raise the issue in the first place without generating chaos. Now, as much as I appreciated Luke enumerating these trends for us, I think the most helpful feature of his post is the questions he asks at the end of each short trend description. For the rest of our time today, I want to offer some tentative answers to these questions in hopes of helping to reverse the minister shortage in the church tradition I was born, raised, and continue to work in. So regarding trends one and two, Luke asks, In a context where more of our churches are larger, 
how can we create spaces for young people to have opportunities to lead and worship? He also asks, in a context where Sunday night service is disappearing, where, when and where can young people have opportunities to lead and worship? I think these are essentially driving at the same point here, and so I offer this suggestion. Some churches participate in the events run by parachurch organizations like Lads to Leaders and Leadership Training for Christ, which offer numerous opportunities for young people to do the very things Luke mentioned above. That being said, if I had to guess, I'd say most of those churches, or maybe many of those churches, probably have more robust Sunday night offerings, which would give young people opportunities to lead and worship anyway. In that case, we'd need to look for some other options. I recommend starting with allowing the teens to lead worship one Sunday morning a quarter. Now, larger churches with a larger uh, talent pool, and sorry if that sounds crass, I don't mean it to, but larger churches will have to take the very mature perspective on these teen-led Sunday mornings. You might not have the same quality of presentation or song leading you're used to, but imagine the extraordinary benefit and blessing when you sit in worship led by the upcoming generations of your church. And trust me, God has put up with quite, quite a bit of bad, meaning unprofessional, worship services in the past. So, to adapt a line from the Lord, be patient, as your Heavenly Father is patient. If leading Sunday worship is not feasible for your church's young people, I also recommend putting together a Sunday morning class for a quarter or something dedicated for teens and parents and anyone else interested. And in this hypothetical class, your church's young people could take turns teaching lessons, saying public prayers, and even leading songs if they wanted to. It may be beneficial for the first few weeks or month of this quarter-long class to let one of your seasoned Bible class teachers or song leaders work alongside your youth minister to teach everyone in the class, teens, parents, and anyone else, how to prepare a Bible lesson or lead a song. Really, it only takes a little bit of creativity to make this work. Now, regarding the third trend that Luke mentioned earlier, he raises this question. In a context where we are less certain of our exclusive access to the truth, how can we still convey the value of preaching and other forms of ministry? It's been said one of the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith is a transformed life. We must always humbly pray for God to use our efforts to do His will, not for our sakes, but for His. So how do we convey the value of preaching and other forms of ministry? Well, one way may be to highlight these specific ways in which our ministry, in a broad sense of our service to God, uh, serves God's will for the Spirit-led transformation into Christ-likeness that God wants us to, uh, to experience. That is, highlighting what fruit is born from our service. Do we see Spirit-led transformation within our churches, and do we f or do we find spiritual stagnation? If the latter, then perhaps it's time to repent and seek God's guidance. If the former, then I think it's perfectly appropriate that we humbly share those stories of God's transformation within your congregation. Let God's work be known among your people and let them see how God is moving in your church. The bottom line is this. Alongside the difficulties and hardships, sharing the joys and successes of ministry can have the wonderful effect of encouraging anyone and everyone in a church to see that one, we truly need each other for the task, and two, 
God can use even the humblest effort to bring others to himself. Now, regarding the fourth trend, uh, Luke asks this question. In a context where we value and respect financial security, how can we better compensate those in ministry so it is a more desirable option? How can we disciple all of our people to place less value upon financial security? Now, I know some churches in the past have helped their ministers pay for additional education. This is an incredible mutual blessing because the church is pouring into their minister to help him or her become a better student of God's word, gain new skills, etc. And the minister in turn blesses the church by being a good steward of that additional training and education, sharing what he or she has gained with the whole church. If you look at the cost of an entire graduate degree all at once, it can feel rather overwhelming. But when you break it down and chip away one class a semester, like many of my students who are in full-time ministry have to do, the cost becomes much more manageable, and the benefits are extraordinary. Now, regarding the fifth trend, Luke asks this question. In a context where ministers are not respected within society, how can we raise the level of respect they're shown in our churches? How can we disciple all of our people to place less value on the opinions of others? Now, either by reputation or personal experience, I've known plenty of good and bad elderships. I believe one way to raise the level of respect shown to ministers in our churches is for elderships and ministers to work more closely as a team and a partnership rather than as employers and employees. The latter arrangement is how many elderships operate. And when you treat your minister simply as an employee and not a partner, who in the congregation would look at the job of the preacher with his five or ten or more bosses and think, yeah, I want to work in that kind of setting where I have multiple bosses who make all my decisions for me, and I, with my training and experience, have relatively little say in what happens around here. Now, obviously, I've exaggerated some, but the situation I've described is by no means inaccurate or even rare. Now, how, how I read it, the second question of this set offers an implicit challenge for ministers to take the lead in showing a radical trust in letting God's standards of honor be our own. It's easier to eschew vices and otherworldly pursuits when we come to see just how shallow those pursuits really are and how they don't bring the abundant and fulfilling spiritual life God invites us to. I admit I struggle with this particular issue because I want to be liked. Who, Who doesn't, right? But I enjoy the affirmation because of the feeling of significance it gives me. Maybe because I was the youngest on my dad's uh, side of the family and my mom's side of the family, I felt like I didn't have much to contribute to family gatherings. I don't think that was the reality. That was just my perception. So so for a very long time, I wanted to be well-liked by everybody, which is exhausting. Eventually, I learned that being liked by everyone is maybe a well-intentioned but ultimately fruitless endeavor. And I became increasingly comfortable with finding solace in the affirmations, gentle corrections, and overall warm regard from those brothers and sisters in Christ who simply know me best. The people I have in mind are the kind of godly men and women who will kindly and lovingly challenge me when they think I've made some misstep. And they'll be the ones whose praise and adulations mean the most because they've seen me grow the most. Giving more weight to the opinions of the people who love us best could, I admit, could lead us to myopia or groupthink, but that's by no means inevitable. Often it leads us to healthier ways to deal with criticism, 
particularly unjust criticism. I've seen this very thing play out in my own life. Years ago, I was fairly active in an online group for ministers, which I will not name out of respect for the covenant one takes when entering that group to allow it to serve as a safe place for current and former ministers. One day, I raised a complex issue. Uh, I raised a complex issue and intended to focus on a certain manner, uh, or a certain matter uh, within that issue. But a handful of uh, group members jumped on another point within my post and attacked me quite viciously. Friends within that group quickly rushed to my defense, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. After about a week or so of a firestorm within that community, I was honestly feeling pretty miserable. But by God's grace, I came to this conclusion, which may be instructive for answering Luke's question here. The people who knew me best, some of the very people who had lovingly corrected me in the past, affirmed me in that moment and defended against unjust attacks. Maybe we need to learn to discern which opinions about us matter most. The final question uh, stemming from Luke's sixth trend is this. In a context where gender roles are such a controversial topic, how can we seek to train young people in a way that doesn't foster division and strife? Now, in the congregationalist structure of Churches of Christ, each church is responsible for setting their own policies. One Church of Christ may be fully egalitarian, sharing the pulpit and all other leadership roles equally between men and women, while another Church of Christ may take a very strict complementarian position. Here's the thing, though. Within all the congregations that span the spectrum, God has undoubtedly given both men and women gifts for proclaiming and explaining Scripture. And if God has given someone a gift, he expects him or her to use it. So for someone in my position where I coordinate our adult Bible classes, the responsibility is mine to give the many men and women in my church who are gifted to teach the opportunity to exercise the very gift that God has given them. That means here at our church, we regularly have Sunday morning Bible classes for our ladies, and we have a ladies' prayer group and a midweek Bible study, among other things. Your church may not want to have the conversation about gender roles, or maybe some on your ministry staff think differently than others on this issue, or your church may be totally convinced they're right wherever they are on this issue. But regardless of where your church stands, if you as a minister or an elder or deacon have the authority to give men and women opportunities to exercise their gifts in ways that are appropriate to your context, you are obligated to give them these opportunities because you are bound by sacred duty to disciple the whole church. Look, I, I know this isn't going to satisfy everyone, and someone may even try to criticize me for not doing as much as he or she would do. Get in line, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to satisfy anyone. And more importantly, yeah, but more importantly, I think what I've shared is a pretty practical and uh, helpful way for us to be faithful with what God has given us, and that's what God expects. The bottom line for this large and complex problem of a minister shortage is this. I don't think one single issue is the X factor and people who are much more studied on the causes of this problem don't think it boils down to a single issue either. I've highlighted Carson Rees and Luke Dockery's work because I'm friends with both of them, and I know Bobby Ross's work by reputation. There are others out there with different opinions, but I don't think for, one, I don't think for a second that one single answer will solve why there is a minister shortage in Churches of Christ, or even why Churches of Christ are shrinking, which is likely related. I do think some humility is needed because obviously something isn't working. 
If your church needs a minister of one kind or another, and your searches outside of your congregation for a minister have turned up empty, maybe it's worth asking if someone already in your church can fulfill that role. If no one is willing to step up, your church leadership should seriously ask, why not? Maybe no one has been encouraged to think about doing ministry. Maybe your church leadership has mistreated their ministers. Or maybe your church needs to do some soul-searching because they've come not to serve, but to be served. The first thing every church should do is pray, and pray fervently. Whether your church has all the ministry staff it needs, or your church can't find a single person to preach on Sundays, we should all pray earnestly that God will raise up for us the men and women our churches need to serve as ministers. We need God's eyes to see whom to encourage to become ministers, and we need to pray that we honor and keep accountable those brothers and sisters who answer the call. That's our first step, and I hope you'll remember to pray for God to raise up the next generation of ministers. A good second step is this. Stand by your minister. Give them room and time and spiritual and financial support to grow. Like I said earlier, it's mutually beneficial for a church to pay for more education or training for your ministers because as the church pours into him or her, he or she can in turn pour back into the life of the church. Formal training like that inevitably generates both personal and spiritual growth, so set them up for success in their ministry. And I hope you can tell I don't mean financial success. And... If your church has given your minister or ministers these opportunities to grow, and that minister has not been a good steward of those gifts, your church is justified in holding that minister accountable. I suspect when I said just a second ago, stand by your minister, and I hope you hear echoes of Tammy Wynette there, someone might have quickly thought of all the bad ministers they know. Yeah, I know some too, okay? Maybe that's not what I'm talking about. But look, if your minister is awkward or lazy or just kind of meh, Guess what? People can grow, if given the opportunity. My wife, uh, my wife and I, occasionally laugh at um, at how much uh, my own teaching has changed, and those kind, sweet individuals from the young professionals class at the White Station Church of Christ ten years ago suffered through uh, quite a bit, quite a few uh, boring and bland and uninspiring lessons. And uh, now I think I'm at least a halfway decent Bible teacher. I just needed the opportunity and space to grow. So, give your minister, give him or her the opportunity and encouragement and see what happens. Don't be the kind of church that led led the anonymous respondent from earlier to tell Bobby Ross, churches of Christ by and large acted like they could treat ministers in every way possible and still hire one who would be new and shiny anytime they wanted. Give your minister what he or she needs. If they grow, praise God. And if not, that's on them. And may God lead you in what you do next. I'm Kevin Burr with Faith in the Folds, and as always, thank you so much for tuning in today.